News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, it had the impact of a bomb, that explosion of the huge amount of ammonium nitrate in Beirut that has now left more than 150 people dead, thousands of people injured, hundreds of thousands of people without homes. And there's much uh, going on in Beirut to try to help people get back on their feet and help the situation. We wanted to talk about some of those efforts this morning. Joining us is Bill Chambers, the CEO of Save the Children Canada. Bill, thank you for being here. Delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. What kind of work is your organization doing in Beirut right now? Well, as you mentioned in your uh, intro, uh, more than 170 actually people killed, 6,000 injured, uh, 300,000 people had their homes destroyed, uh, destroyed or uh, severely damaged, so they're homeless and displaced, of those maybe 100,000 children. So it's really a severe circumstance. Um, uh, 12 primary care centers have been severely damaged, three hospitals partially or fully operable. So in the short term, so we're two weeks, uh, almost two weeks into it, it's really about shelter, it's about food, it's about water. Um, from Save the Children's point of view, there's a lot of work being done to try to, uh, what we call alternate care, so children who've been separated from their, their parents or their family, children who've lost their parents their family or whose, parent, whose family is still hospitalized, providing them care, ensuring that they have contact with family. Um, and there's still rubble to be cleared. So we're all clearing rubble and uh, doing repairs. You know, it, it is a an endless um, amount of work given the uh, scale of the devastation um, in the city. Yeah, can you give us an idea then? What have you heard about that devastation? What is it like? Well, it's like a it's like a war zone. It's like a, a place that has been very severely bombed. There's rubble. Uh, anything that's that's within sort of ten minutes of um, the port uh, is severely severely damaged. So we had an employee, Nora Wahid, who was about ten minutes from the the port when the explosion went off. She had her five nephews and nieces playing on the uh, on the balcony, mm-hmm. um, and all of the the glass in that building. Um, uh, exploded. All of the children were uh, were injured, oh. uh, and none of the children uh, three days later had been treated because the hospitals were so overwhelmed with uh, the circumstances. So that's in the immediate. Um, longer term, you know, there's 120,000 metric tons of food stocks that have been destroyed. Uh, 85% of the cereals in Lebanon had been stored in the port. So the grain supply in, in, in Lebanon is about four to six weeks. So there's the immediate, how do you deal with the trauma of the people who've uh, survived and are trying to um, um, figure out how to live. Uh, their, lives, their livelihoods have uh, been destroyed. And the, the midterm prospect is, is devastating. We, uh, we had done a, say the children had done an analysis of the um, state status of Beirut that came out almost exactly a week before the explosion. And uh, by our count, about 500,000 children um, were struggling to survive, were, were uh, threatened by hunger in Beirut before this happened. So there was an economic, um, economic devastated, mm-hmm. preceded the devastation of the explosion. So, and then there's COVID on top of that. The week of the bomb was the, uh, was the day of the highest uh, count of new cases of COVID uh, in, in Lebanon. So it's kind of a triple whammy. Um, it's going to be a long road uh, out of there. 
Is, to any kind of stability. Are there a and lot of aid groups like yours that are there doing that work? So the Humanitarian Coalition, which I'm representing, I'm the vice chair of the Humanitarian Coalition, is a group of 12 Canadian NGOs that work together to um, to coordinate on the ground and to, to uh, ensure that we are coordinated in Canada. All 12 of us uh, had pre-existing operations on the ground in in uh, Lebanon, in the case of Save the Children, we've been there since 1953. In the case of uh, World Vision, they've been there since 1975, I think, Oxfam since the late 80s and early 90s. So we've all been, uh, have operations on the ground because of the refugee circumstances in Lebanon. We had uh, you know, existing programs up and running in the COVID mode, so in a remote mode. So we're able to pivot immediately, all 12 uh, of our agencies, to deliver that kind of uh, rapid onset crisis right. um, service. So water, shelter, um, food, and then services to, for reunification and start to clear up the, uh, the rubble. So Bill, if people want to help out, is there some place they can go to online that would give them more information? Yeah, so uh, you can get, the government will match dollar for dollar all donations from Canadian individuals between the 4th of August and the 24th of August, so the next week or so. Uh, you can go to together.ca, which is the Humanitarian Coalition's uh, website, and give there or to any of its members and save the children would be savethechildren.ca. Right. Um, and there will be on the front page a, a button you can uh, push to uh, give to the, to the Beirut uh, crisis. All right, Bill. Thank you so much for your time and good luck. Thanks so much for having us. That's Bill Chambers, CEO of Save the Children Canada, one of 12 Canadian humanitarian and NGOs that are in Beirut right now trying to help out uh, with so many people who are in need of some place to live, some place to say something to eat, and they are certainly doing their best. This is Mornings with Simi. My biggest opponent isn't Biden, it's not the Democrats, it's the corrupt media. We have a, a corrupt media in this country, the likes of which nobody's ever seen before. Some familiar words there from U.S. President Donald Trump. He was speaking this morning on one of his favorite shows, Fox and Friends. And that is a story that, you know, normally we talk a lot about that, essentially. But the pandemic, of course, has overshadowed everything that is going on in the United States, particularly the fall election. Well, what else would be going on normally at this time is the pomp and circumstance of the national conventions of the Democratic and Republican parties. That's not really happening. Today, the Democratic National Convention does kick off, and that is where Joe Biden and Kamala Harris will get the official party endorsement, but it's not going to look or sound anything like what we have seen in the past. For more on that, we're joined now by Global News Washington correspondent Reggie Giacchini. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. Happy Monday. Happy Monday to you, too. Is it a happy Monday for the Democrats? Because this is a very strange uh, convention they've got going on today. Yeah, I mean, look, gone are the days of these massive packed 20,000 person arenas where all that political jockeying takes place and they try to really see if they can make any kind of maneuvers uh, to get the platform better suited to what they want. Uh, incoming now are the days of everything being online where the speeches are going to take place virtually and in a much shorter time frame. Usually these speeches will go for upwards of 10 minutes. We're now looking at speeches of just two minutes getting through dozens and dozens of people over the next few days. So are they hoping to still carry some momentum? It used to be that those conventions always created a boost for the candidates. 
Yeah, look, they're going to try to to kind of continue on with that in this new COVID era. They have tapped some big uh, names in the celebrity world, in the musical world, to try and uh, drum up that support and keep people interested and online as long as possible. The kind of brunt of everything takes place starting at 9 o'clock uh, Eastern uh, and goes through about 11 o'clock. Uh, and, and given the fact that they don't have that, that TV presence, they don't have all of the media there to be able to cover this, they're trying to be creative uh, in ensuring you know people that are sitting at their computers all day long at work will continue to sit at their computers through the evening hours. Okay, so how is this thing going to look? Well, it's going to look a lot different. It's going to look exactly like when we were all doing Zoom meetings with our friends during the course of the pandemic. There will be just people on screen. There will be videos put together uh, from people within the political world and from pe- people uh, within just general U.S. life talking about how a Biden-Harris ticket is going to change the Democratic Party for the better. And this is going to be that opportunity now for the party to build that bridge, to bring members of the far left and par- uh, far left part of the party into the center, and they can all kind of work together because at the end of the day this party has one goal and that's removing Donald Trump despite all the infighting between the moderates and those you know the the self-described democratic socialists. So will there be any kind of counter-programming done by the Republicans this week? Oh, absolutely there will be, and it will be done with the face of President Donald Trump. I mean, look, he's traveling today to Wisconsin, the state that was supposed to hold the DNC in uh, Milwaukee. Uh, the president's going to land there later on this afternoon to try and claim some of that spotlight. He has a packed travel week all week long, uh, but he's also going to try to stoke the fire by talking more about the USPS crisis, talking more about that clip that you played in the beginning, that the media is out to get him. But it is worth noting that a CNN poll this morning actually lessened that gap between Trump and Biden uh, with now a a smaller margin between the two of them. So the media isn't always working against Donald Trump. Right. And that's traditionally does happen. I think we forget that sometimes, right? That at the end of August, when the race starts to really tighten up in earnest, that gap always closes. That gap does start to close. Now, look, there are a number of polls that were released in the last 24 hours. So you have to look at the kind of aggregate of all of them. And it still is roughly a seven and a half point lead that Joe Biden has over Donald Trump. uh, And it really has to do with the president's handling of the coronavirus virus, but also with these ramped up uh, 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 attacks, partisan style on the United States Postal Service and how that could impact the election uh, and the vote through to November. So the president still does have a number of things working against him right now. He's simply going to try to take that and use it as an attack against the Democrats. Right. You mentioned the United States Postal Service there, which is definitely under the spotlight right now. I noticed that the postmaster general on the weekend said, "Okay, we're going to stop removing mailboxes. And I thought, what were you doing removing mailboxes to begin with? Yeah, look, they, they say that they go through this on a yearly basis and they remove underutilized post boxes from around the country. But that's overshadowed by the fact that this postmaster general, a political appointee and one of the highest paid people in the U.S. government, uh, is actively working to dismantle the U.S. Postal Service by taking away overtime, not allowing for uh, any kind of hiring uh, and making it more difficult to sort mail based on that president's baseless claim that any mail-in ballots are going to lead to fraud. And he says that the USPS won't be able to handle the influx of mail. It's worth pointing out here, Christmas time has more mail passing through it than any election season. All right, more to come on that. Reggie, thank you. Thank you. That is Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. I'm always fascinated by, not just in the United States, but in Canada as well, the discussion of these national polls. Like We also know that in Canada, during a federal election, a national poll 
doesn't really mean all that much because in the end, it's about riding by riding and how you know how popular the party is in a particular riding. Can they gather enough ridings to form government? Well, in the United States, it's a similar thing. State by state, they have to win each individual states to add up to a certain number of electoral college numbers in order to win the presidency. So a national poll is not as reflective of what's going on as a state by state poll and then adding up those electoral college numbers. So regardless, I think the race is obviously tighter than I think has been portrayed up until now. It's going to be that way as we get into the more serious election period heading into November. So yeah, there's going to be a lot of interesting stuff coming up in the next couple of weeks. We'll see how that campaign shapes up. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, lots to talk about with our Nikki Reitmeyer on this Monday morning, including some adventures that were had over the weekend. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. I'm a little tired this morning. I'm not going to lie. You're a little tired. <laughs> I'm tired this morning. And you know, I think I would have been fine if not for the thunder and lightning storm at about 1230 last night. Woke me up, kept Ooh. me up for about an hour. It was loud. Did you not hear it? I saw the lightning. So I'm out in White Rock right now, oh, staying right. at my parents' place. And from from Surrey, you could see, you know, you could see the, the lightning quite a bit. And you could hear maybe a little bit of thunder. And they're currently up in Seashelt. And they said that, you know, they could really see quite a beautiful, a beautiful lightning show, of course, over the ocean. Um, for you, but it was loud. Oh, eh? right over my head. I was also going to oh, say it's no. adorable that you said you're in White Rock right now because technically you're in South Surrey, but I grew up in South Surrey and we always <laughs> said that we lived in White Rock. So <laughs> I think this is the thing that Metro Vancouver people totally understand where, you know, you're right on the boundary between South Surrey where you go, it's White Rock. It's White Rock. It's, no, no, it's, be- it's beautiful, not. beautiful, beautiful. I've been White to your Rock. parents' house. That is yeah, South okay. Surrey. <laughs> A Metro Vancouver, I think. <laughs> it yes. really is. And that's why I felt that because I grew up doing that. So I thought that was very funny. Uh, but let's talk about well, the other reason why we're a little bit tired today is because we had a, a very big road trip, one day road trip yesterday. We got up really early. You know, I set my alarm earlier yesterday morning than I set it for work <laughs> Monday to Friday. Typically, we got into the, the car, the mornings with Simi team, who, you know, we are a, a social bubble together. Yes, we, you know, we are. We, kind of, we limit our interactions with other people, but we do interact with each other, which is, I think, really nice. So, you know, we decided, okay, as a team, why don't we go and do something for for the day in a, in a socially distanced way. So a big shout out to uh, Paul Crawford, who's the Penticton Art Gallery curator. He arranged for us to have a private showing of the Bob Ross exhibit that's happening at the Penticton yeah. Art Gallery. So it was great to be able to walk through an art gallery and there wasn't a soul in there except for you know the, the staff who were working and, and then us as a morning show team. That's right, which was awesome. So thank you, Paul, for that. But we should also mention that that Penticton Art Gallery has gone out of its way to very carefully allow people in to see the mm-hmm. Bob Ross exhibit. It is hugely popular. Paul told me yesterday they've had, by the time it's over, they will have had, they think, 10,000 people come through to see it. Uh, but they socially distance. Only six people are allowed in at a time. Right. You have to wear the mm-hmm. masks and you have to be careful and they want, but there's a lot of space for just six people to be wandering through there. And when we were leaving, we saw the lineup of people waiting to get in for opening time, which was still, I think about 20 minutes or so away when we left. And they were all very nicely socially distanced on the sidewalk. 
Yeah, and they had, you know, the marks on the floor as to where you should be standing and how you should be moving even through the gift shop and yes. through the gallery. So I thought it was a really brilliant, you know, idea of something to do during this time when you're not really too sure, you know, what activities you should or shouldn't be partaking in. I mean, certainly we know that, yeah, going to a beach party probably isn't a good idea like what we saw over the weekend. Oh boy, yeah. I know. But doing something like this where you know that the owners of the, the museum or the people who are working are being so conscious of making sure that everything is safe. It was really, really a pleasure to to see this art gallery that way. Yes. And it was cool to see the Bob Ross Loved paintings it. as well, wasn't it? Loved it. I bought myself a pair of Bob Ross deck of cards. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like really cool merchandise that you could get there. Yes. Bob Ross pins, Bob Ross magnets, Bob, Bob Ross, Ross t-shirts, yeah, Bob, Bob Ross bobblehead. It was there was some good stuff there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was cool. And they had you know not just Bob Ross paintings in this exhibit, which they they did have obviously many, but they had other paintings that, as well that looked really similar to Bob well, Ross's work. I had no idea that speed Neither. painting was a thing. And this was part of the exhibit after the Bob Ross stuff is that there is a whole genre of painting called speed painting where you essentially make a painting in an hour or half an hour, whatever it is. Uh, and they're very well done, but this has been done before Bob Ross came along. Yeah. And one of them in particular was actually a Canadian guy, which I thought was really neat that, you know, there was a Canadian doing this before Bob Ross was even doing this. So I had a chance to speak to the art gallery curator about that as we were you know, kind of standing in front of these other paintings. And I asked him about that exhibit as well. Listen to this. So this style is called? It's called speed painting. And it's basically wet on wet technique, but sort of, yeah, just very fast painting. And uh, Levine Flexog here was doing these in the 1940s and would travel around uh, to Banff and sell these to tourists. And they became like the standard wedding gift on the prairies for a period of time there. So yeah, everybody would have one of these in their homes. And It's interesting that there was a, a Canadian who was doing the Bob Ross style of painting before there was Bob Ross. Oh, there was, yeah. So Levine Flexog's this gentleman's name. And then there was uh, the German guy by the name of William Alexander who retired to Powell River and passed away there was the original sort of TV painter Bob Ross and that's who Rob studied with in the 1970s before he sort of took over from William Alexander and then created his own exhibition and his own program. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. So the exhibition that you have here today has some really cool Bob Ross paintings but what people might not know is there was actually what three versions of every painting that was done there was so he did 31 episodes 31 seasons about 13 episodes a season and for each of those episodes he did three paintings one as a, a template as a guide that he would have off screen so he'd keep on track the one you do on the episode and then the one that he would do afterwards to get close-ups or things they might have missed while they were taping and for the book version and so most of the paintings we have are from the book version except for the last episode of the last season he did which we have the, the actual painting he did on on the episode. I imagine that since doing this exhibit, you've probably learned a lot more about Bob Ross than you knew previously. I have. What is one of your favorite little tidbits that you learned about Bob Ross through this adventure you've been on? Um, I think the best thing I've learned about Bob Ross is just how genuine he was as a, the person you see online on TV is the guy that he was. He was, before that, he was in the military and he was sort of the real badass, tough guy that, you know, made you brush your teeth, clean the toilets, your toothbrush, and all that other stuff. And when he got out of that, he committed himself to just sharing his passion for art and vowed he'd never yell at anyone again. And from what I understand, he kept that calm demeanor throughout his life. Like I know as a kid, his watching that show sort of was the impetus. That 
that got me to where I am today here, the curator of the Penticton Art Gallery. Just sort of planted that seed and uh, just got me excited about the magic of art. And, uh, you know, whether you think it's high art or low art, doesn't really matter. You know, seeing the people come through this exhibition and how many young kids are really excited about Bob Ross is, gives me a lot of hope for the future for the arts here in Canada and hopefully internationally because it is something that is truly an international phenomenon. Oh, it was so great. That's Paul Crawford there. Thanks, Nikki. Thanks, Simi. So, Nikki Reitmeyer, that's Paul Crawford. Uh, Penticton Art Gallery is where they're having an exhibit of Bob Ross paintings, the only exhibit in North America. We did it in a day in our bubble yesterday, there and back, to see that exhibit. Uh, so, yeah, you might want to check that out if you get a chance as well. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about travel here for a moment because we know that the airlines still want us to travel. Heck, I get emails from both WestJet and Air Canada every week telling me, I think last week it was a sun sale that was going on where I thought, where am I going to buy tickets? Where am I going to go? I'm not going to travel somewhere right now. Well, Air Canada would really like you to, and they're being criticized today for promoting leisure travel to the United States, even though we know the pandemic is raging like crazy down there. For more on this, we're joined by Amanda Connolly, our Global News political reporter. Good morning, Amanda. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So what exactly is Air Canada doing to promote leisure travel? So the airline has a recording up on their customer booking telephone line uh, when you dial in to, to book to buy a ticket, for example, or to, to you know, talk to a customer representative there. And it asks customers if they are eager to reunite with friends and relatives in the U.S., saying, uh, asking them basically, did you know that they are, quote, permitted to travel by air to or from the U.S. for leisure or business, end quote. And so, as you mentioned there, that's causing a lot of questions to be asked about whether this is ethical, whether it's responsible behavior from the airline. I do want to be very clear here. They're not breaking any laws. They're not breaking any kind of uh, the restrictions that are in place so far. There is a loophole, however, in the U.S. regulations that does allow Canadians uh, down there. It places no restrictions on them coming from air, unlike the case when you try and cross over the border from uh, from land at a regular border point of entry. And so uh, that that has been described as a loophole. The airline is coming under some criticism from public health as- experts who are saying they should not be promoting the availability of that loophole, given, as you mentioned earlier, the U.S. is having a lot of difficulty right now getting the scale of the outbreak of the pandemic under control in their country. Okay, so given that, uh, the people like us Canadians still would have to quarantine when they come home, Right. That's correct. So anyone coming back into the country here, again, there, there's no uh, restrictions. There's, there's nothing barring Canadian citizens from returning to Canada. And when they do come from anywhere else, they are required uh, to, by law now under the Quarantine Act, uh, to quarantine for 14 days. That means no going out for groceries, no uh, stopping on the way home from the airport, for example. You literally are in lockdown for 14 days. And so that is uh, part of the effort to contain the spread of this. Of course, we have seen cases so far of people being ticketed, people being uh, called out on social media for breaking quarantine, for not following those rules properly. And so uh, that, I think, combined with the the scope of the outbreak in the U.S. has been raising concerns about, again, uh, you know, the, the government and, and the law enforcement authorities right. here are trying to keep that quarantine under control as best they can, make sure that people are obeying it, they're not breaking that. Uh, and again, a, a lot of it, though, really does come down to an individual's respect for what they're promising to do when they come back into the country. All right, Amanda, thank you. Thank you.
That's Amanda Connolly, our global news political reporter. Her story today has to do with this recording that is playing. And if you've been on hold with Air Canada, you've probably heard it, where they're promoting leisure travel to the United States for Canadians, saying that you are now able to do this. Well, sure, technically, there is that loophole that you could fly into the United States, but do you really want to go on vacation there right now with everything that's going on? Even if you do, when you come home, you're still required to undergo a 14-day total quarantine here in Canada before you can start going out and about. Uh, I know they're desperate for business because they're worried about you know staying in business, but I'm not quite sure this is the way to go. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about doing some traveling, shall we? Because even though the border is said to be closed, we know that people are kind of getting around that, at least by flying across the border. But talking about coming up to Canada, hundreds of Americans still get turned back at the border as they do try to come through the land border crossing. They want to go on vacation. They want to go shopping, whatever the case may be. So Canada, Canadian Border Services has now released the numbers as the federal government extended the border closure for another 30 days. So we know that this is still happening out there. So is it time to think about just making this more than 30 days at a time and maybe saying, you know what, we're just going to do this until 2021. Joining us for more on this is immigration lawyer Len Saunders. Good morning, Len. Hi, Simi. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Like We've talked about the border being closed for a long time now, but are there a lot of Americans that you talk to, Len, who don't know this? Oh, absolutely. So as you go further south, especially, you know, out of Washington State, you see a lot of Americans who are very naive and just drive north on the I-5 with no idea that the border is closed down. And many times when I've been at the Peace Arch Park, you know, there's very few cars going back and forth uh, through the border, but you'll see the odd American-plated car with, you know, California or, or Oregon license plates. And I think, I bet they have no idea that this border is closed so are they not doing any research on anything then before they get there? Oh, absolutely. I think most Americans really don't watch anything, you know, north of the border. They don't watch any Canadian news. And so they're clueless that, you know, you can't go to Canada as a tourist right now. So that would explain then how we keep hearing about people being turned away. Is that, do you think, the, is the problem that we're doing it 30 days at a time, Len? Well, I think what the Canadian government needs to do is be more realistic. So I definitely agree with what you just said, with let's close the border until the end of the year. Most people, I think, have come to the reality that these 30-day closures, they just keep rolling them over. So every 30 days, they say another 30 days. So I think just to give people more clarity and so that they can plan long-term, I think the Canadian government should be more realistic and say, rather than closing the border for 30 days at a time, let's just close it until the end of the year, and then people can plan accordingly. But that's going to make it even tougher, though, for a lot of those businesses on the U.S. side of the border, isn't it? We've talked about that before, too. Like, they're suffering. Oh, absolutely. So I went down to Birch Bay, because I live in Blaine, for lunch on Sunday. And as I drove around Birch Bay you could see the houses that are owned by the Canadians because the grass is knee-deep. There's dandelions growing everywhere. The restaurant I went to, which is usually packed with an outdoor deck, there was maybe two or three people having lunch. It's, it's quiet. 
That does sound quiet then too. So how are those businesses coping? Are they just waiting and hoping that the border is going to open? Well, I think everyone was doing that for the first few months. I think most businesses now, you know, become realistic. I know all the mailbox places, their storefronts are closed. If you want to get your packages, you have to go through the back door. They have shipping containers outside now that they're just stuffing everyone's packages into. The gas stations, you know, you're if I drive by one of our local gas stations, and I think there's about a dozen in, in town here, and if you see any cars gassing up, it's, it's shocking. There's nobody in this town gassing up, getting groceries from Canada. Rarely do I see a Canadian license plate. If I see a, a BC license plate on a car in Blaine, I, I literally take a double take to, to look at the car. That's how few Canadians are in this town right now. See, that's so interesting to me because we see Washington license plates up here. It's caused a bit of a problem, right? We see uh, different states up here and there have been, you know, anecdotal stories about people not treating those cars very well. Uh, so, and yet we're not seeing it in reverse. Well, I know a lot of Canadians live near me in Blaine or northern Washington State on green cards or dual citizens like myself, and they come across as essential workers. So there are people crossing. I haven't. Actually, today is five months since I last came north. I'm dual, so I've been abiding by the quarantine. I haven't gone north. I haven't needed to. But a lot of people, it's their livelihood. They work at hospitals in Vancouver. They uh, work at construction sites, they're architects, uh, they lease vehicles. So there are a lot of people in this area going north. And, of course, because they live here, they all have U.S. license plates. So that's why you're seeing a number of cars in the lower mainland, from, right. from Washington State at least. Right. So then, then how does that apply to the people who are in Point Roberts who have been lobbying for an exemption to be able to drive through Canada to get to the United States? I find it hard to believe they're not allowed to do that already. Well, they are, but they have to be coming for really an essential reason. They have to be coming over for doctor's appointments, dentist appointments, to get prescriptions. But just to leisurely drive over to Blaine, they can't do. And a lot of them are upset. I know that the Port of Bellingham has been discussing doing a passenger ferry between Bellingham and Point Roberts. I don't think they've ever done that in 100 no. or 150 years. So, you know, that's where people need to make long-term plans, realizing that they have to make you know, other arrangements for their travel. Okay, so do you think then this whole process needs to be better formalized rather than just going month to month? Well, I think both governments, especially the Canadian government, has to be more realistic when they're telling people. Like, when people say to me, oh, well, I'm going to, you know, do this or that after this 30-day shutdown, I say to them, this is going to continue on for a long time. With the numbers growing in the U.S., and I know the the numbers in B.C., you know, it's not like they're going into the thousands, but they are increasing the number of positive tests. I don't think this border is going to reopen anytime soon. I'll be shocked if the border opens before the end of the year, and that's still four months away. Yeah, I know. I'm starting to think that, too. Uh, Len, thank you for your time. Thanks, Simi. Have a good day. You, too. That's immigration lawyer Len Saunders, based in Blaine, as you heard him say there, and he has not crossed the border in five months and thinks that maybe we need to formalize this a bit better rather than going month to month. Now, he says that he would be shocked if the border opened before the end of the year. How do you feel about that? Do you think, yeah, we should just do this, close this thing till the end of the year? I can't. I don't hear a lot of Canadians saying they want that land border crossing to reopen with the U.S., but weigh in with your thoughts. This is Mornings with Simi. 
There is a loophole in the U.S. regulations that does allow Canadians uh, down there. It places no restrictions on them coming from air, unlike the case when you try and cross over the border from uh, from land at a regular border point of entry. That's Global News political reporter Amanda Connolly. We spoke to her a short time ago about that phone message that people are hearing when they call Air Canada that kind of encourages Canadians to leisure travel to the United States. In other words, it's okay to go down to the United States, which I think most Canadians feel like it most definitely is not. But we wanted to get more perspective on this. Joining us now is Claire Newell, President of Travel Best Bets. Hi, Claire. Hi there, Simi. I just heard that for the very first time this morning, the, uh, the phone message. And I, I think I should clarify from the travel industry, one of the things, um, that was mentioned on there, the word leisure is a really bad choice yeah. that they used. Now, leisure travel, unfortunately, even just going to visit, um, sick family members or that falls under that word leisure, probably not the best choice. You know, Air Canada's not start saying something new here. Um, there has, Canadians have always been able to fly to the U.S. during this whole pandemic, um, just not drive. And there's no need to quarantine upon arrival into the U.S. Do I think that's right? Probably not. No. Yeah. Um, and it's completely opposite. If like, if, if people from the U.S. or really anywhere want to come to Canada, they can't. I mean, just with the exception of just a few people that are exempt, which would be immediate family members of Canadians, temporary foreign workers and international students, and they still have to quarantine for 14 days. Um, this is not, I don't think that Air Canada meant, hey, go down to Vegas and sit poolside. Like, that is not what um, people are, are interested in, in doing. I really believe that. I mean, I really hope that people are socially responsible. Oh, hope, and, hope and is a big word that. there, though, Claire, because we know this we all true. hope. And we yeah. are not seeing any evidence of that actually being borne out. Yeah, the... Um, I have to say from the the side of someone who gets calls about people looking to travel at the moment there uh, it is slim to none going down to the US in fact I just I heard the general manager of the office saying um she got a call from somebody who said are, are people going to the US and she goes no and she was you mean I can't go she's she her, her mom was very sick right. um like critical that is the type of um booking that we would be seeing um, people who are going for something that is in their mind essential. I mean, we're not judging. The, the, the reality is, is our Canadian government has the advisory up for a reason and has closed the borders to the U.S. for a reason. So um, I, I'm guessing that Air Canada is going to change that message. I really hope that they do. I hope they do, too, because, you know, that that is what concerns people. I still get the emails from, like, WestJet and Air Canada, and there's certainly still marketing, like, where right, to it's go. Their business. I get yeah. sun sale, you know, book now for your sun sale this for your winter getaway. And even those, I go, really, guys? Like, I don't think I'm really into booking and thinking about traveling right now. Yeah, I, I mean, at this stage of the game, I'm thinking that um, – companies that are in the tourism industry, whether they're hotels, car rental companies, airlines, they are promoting essentially 2021 and they're have terms and conditions that are super flexible because they know if there's a spike and people can't travel that they don't want their clients holding the bag. And anyone who books um, should be looking for those terms. You really have to think why why, and where are you going? You're not leaving COVID behind. Um, I do know that, you know, we talked about this about 
a month ago that insurance did become available. You, you couldn't even get right. travel insurance to cover you for COVID-19, and now you can. And the reason that they did that was because the their client base, essentially for the company that's doing it, is snowbirds who may have had properties that they wanted to close up and then get back to Canada. Yes, I have had some emails about that as well. Yeah, you know, at the end of the day, Canada is protecting us. You still have to undergo a 14-day self-isolation when you come back from anywhere outside of Canada. And if you don't, it's a $750,000 fine. I mean, that's nothing to to sneeze at. I mean, people are having to do that. And I haven't actually heard of any cases of people that haven't. Have you? No, I haven't. Uh, but this, like, the travel thing is pretty tricky. So let me ask you this, Claire. Like, what are the rules right now? If somebody did want to take advantage of, say, some of the lower prices that they see, what is their, how, like, are they allowed to cancel that and not get a refund, but maybe move it into 2022 if they want to? Yes. In fact, almost every company has had to do that. Um, you can't stay afloat with hard terms and conditions saying, you know, you're going to be out of pocket if you can't take that flight. And the as um, borders start to loosen around the world, I mean, many people don't realize that Canadians are actually, even though we don't want anyone here, um, Canadians are welcomed into almost 60 countries now. And so there will be some promotions by companies to say that you can come in you know, in Q, maybe Q4 of 2020 or uh, into 2021. Right. And that's to, that's their business and that's to stimulate the, the economy. But at the end of the day, they all have terms that are extremely flexible. Make sure you read the terms and conditions, though, if you are thinking about doing something and make sure that you can get out of it if you need to. That's the big if, right? Thank you for that, Claire. My pleasure. Bye, Simi. Bye. That's Claire Newell, our president of Travel Best Bets, talking about that travel to the United States. Yeah, she's right. I'm pretty sure Air Canada is going to be changing that message that you hear when you're on hold with Air Canada, if you have to phone them, that is promoting leisure travel to the United States. It's gotten a lot of attention for all the wrong reasons. This is Mornings with Simi. So one of the things we're going to be talking about here are gas prices. Remember uh, last year when we got the results of the gas price review that was launched by the provincial government? We're trying to find out why the heck gas prices are so expensive just here in Metro Vancouver. And you might remember that the review found that we were paying the, the part of the gap was 13 cents a liter that could not be explained. We we're paying 13 cents a liter more for reasons that they could not explain. Well, the provincial government has brought the Fuel Transparency Act to the table now in an effort to keep prices down. We wanted to talk more about that. Joining us is Energy Minister Bruce Ralston. Good morning. Thank you for being here. No problem. Beautiful morning out there. It is a beautiful morning out there. Another hot one. How is this act going to bring prices down for consumers? Well, you mentioned uh, the the 13 cents uh, that the BC Utilities Commission discovered was unexplained. The uh, oil and gas companies had plenty of opportunity, and uh, that was almost a year ago, to explain that. They have chosen not to. There hasn't been a single explanation or attempt to explain that coming uh, out of them. So we uh, passed the uh, Fuel Transparency Act that you you mentioned, and... uh, what uh, the next step that we're, we, were, we are taking is uh, we're going to require wholesalers, um, uh, those who um, who supply uh, gasoline and diesel to the retail sector, whether they store it or whether they import it or, and refine it, they will be required to divulge a series of, uh, of price data to the BC Utilities Commission that's going to start in the fall. And uh, we expect that... Uh, 
the fact that they will no longer be able to set their prices in complete secrecy will have an effect uh, uh, upon the process uh, of moderating prices. Maybe it won't, but uh, we'll see. And uh, if that's the case, we'll be in a position to take further action if required. Is there any legislation like this in another jurisdiction that you know of that has worked? Um, well, in uh, in Washington State and uh, and in Oregon, they have a similar legislation, but each fuel market is uh, very different. I mean, so it's hard to make uh, draw analogies between one jurisdiction and another. In southern British Columbia, about ninety uh, percent, five companies control ninety percent of the market here. So it's uh, it's what they call the economists use the big word oligopoly. Uh, oligopoly pricing is uh, what the these utilities commission suggested and so we're uh, trying to pull back the curtain on that and see how prices are set here in 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 british columbia okay and how long will that process take then well the data will the first data will be uh, collected in october and published in november and it'll be required uh, in, in, in every month from then on Okay, so we'll have to wait and see if that has any impact. But we wanted to talk to you about a couple of other things this morning as well. Uh, let's start with Site C here. A couple of reports showing that BC Hydro is is doesn't really have a handle on what's going on there. What has happened in the last couple of weeks? That How have you dealt with this? Uh, well, the uh, a couple of reports were released on the project. And uh, I, I said publicly, and I would be uh, naive to say otherwise, that I'm deeply concerned by the reports of the of, of what's going on there. So I've appointed uh, a, a former deputy minister of finance, a former and a trained as a civil engineer, Peter Milburn, to to um, look in to make an inquiry. He has a team available with him, and uh, and he'll get back to me fairly shortly with advice. Are you worried? You're concerned about what you've heard. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think everyone recognized that uh, there were cost pressures uh, on this project. It's a massive project. When COVID struck, uh, the workforce was dramatically scaled down. It wasn't shut down. That was what we focused on here in British Columbia was safe operation. So it did continue, but it went down from about 5,000 workers to 1,500 beginning in March. It scaled back up um, beginning in June. Uh, so, but it, that has had an, and will have an impact on both cost and the, and the schedule. So, um, it, it the costs are costs are going up, um, but uh, the hydro is engaged in an exercise to figure out and as best they can and give advice on uh, what the new budget might look like uh, and. Uh, Mr. Milburn is, is digging into that right now. Are you satisfied, though, with the information you've gotten from Hydro? Because there's been a lot of questions about how is it that Hydro didn't know about this before? How could it have gotten this far? Uh, well, the, um, the, there is a, what, what's called the Project Assurance Board, which is a separate body of, uh, of uh, skilled people in the sense that they're, most of them are engineers and finance people and have a view of that. They have been reporting uh, regularly. Uh, but uh, uh, I, I'm I'm looking into why uh, the, the cost pressures have seemed to have escalated, uh, particularly in the report that uh, talked about uh, what happened uh, and what was discovered in in December just last year. So I take it there's more to come on that. 
Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I, I mean, a project of this scale requires uh, a constant attention and management, and it's, uh, it's, it's a deep concern for me and for the government. Well, thank you very much for your time today. Great, thank you. That's Bruce Ralston, the Energy Minister, talking about Site C, fuel transparency.